It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, it's uh, Dave Nelson, and uh, the other guy is missing. Uh, Back with another issue of Cellar Dwellers. For those of you who are listening live, uh, you'll notice that we did not have the normal intro music. We'll have to add that after the fact. Uh, Just doing this like uh, totally different than usual. And uh, for those of you who might want to complain about audio quality, Please don't. (laughs) I am not in the studio tonight. I am sitting at my den, uh, in my den at home, and uh, it's uh, sort of hot up here. It's the fifth level of my house, and so all the heat comes up here, and I've got two fans running in the background. So any audio quality problems, you can blame either on the $12 GE handset that I'm using or telephone that I'm using or the uh, fans creating a lot of white noise in the background. So... Some guys will do anything to get out of buying the wine for the show. And uh, tonight, uh, the other guy, the passionate one, called me and said, uh, you know, I didn't even realize it was Tuesday, the long weekend. I thought it was still Monday. And uh, by the way, uh, a good friend's father died. And actually, not to make light of this, because I think I think it was a legitimate excuse. Somebody really did die, uh, somebody's dad. Of course, it happens to all of us. It's the circle of life. And uh, the passionate one is currently uh, actually had to drive all the way from Pittsburgh to what is called Seven Springs, which is the nearest ski area, Um, not at this time of year, of course, but the nearest ski area to uh, Pittsburgh. Apparently, that's where they were having the viewing tonight, and it was one night only. So uh, he's doing a three-hour road trip, three hours of drive time, uh, plus whatever time in the funeral home. So... Here I am, all by my lonesome, uh, to do the show tonight. Uh, The show must go on, and uh, hey, he got out of buying the wine. Uh, Let's go straight to that, uh, just because it's an interesting topic. Now, I must say we have a lot of uh, interesting topics queued up tonight, and I probably would have canceled the show entirely, except that uh, I have uh, one of my former uh, compatriots and co-workers, Eric Palmer, who is a, um, well... A uh, very, very talented CFO and uh, has so many interesting uh, stories to tell about that. But perhaps the most interesting story I heard from him along the way was about his family. And he's going to talk about their background, I think, coming from Germany and their, uh, their sauerkraut recipe. Now, you wouldn't think sauerkraut would be a great topic for a home winemaking show other than, you know, a lot of wine is German and sauerkraut is German, although the sauerkraut, sauerkraut goes much better with uh, you know, a beer and a brat. But it turns out, and I did not know this, I really didn't know the first thing about sauerkraut before he told me the story going back three years or so, uh, it is a fermented product. And so he's going to join us, uh, dialing him probably in the next uh, 10 to 15 minutes to share the details of his sauerkraut recipe. 
So uh, while we wait for Eric to dial in, and maybe even the passionate one, if he can get a signal in the hinterlands of Pennsylvania, driving back across the PA Turnpike, which, by the way, did you know this? There's so many interesting things about Pennsylvania. You know, first of all, Pittsburgh, the, the grand city from which I hail. Hey, I see Eric is coming on here. I'll welcome him, welcome him in a second. But the grand city from which I hail. Actually, I probably have to unmute him. Let's uh, just click that, uh, Eric. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. You made it. Hi, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad. So uh, we're just getting into it, and my uh, partner in wine didn't show up tonight. So it's it's lucky that I have you as a special guest. <laughs> I'm so glad you could well, join I'm, us. <clears throat> I'm definitely honored. I'm, I'm fighting a bit of a cold, but I'll... Uh... I'll do my best. All right. Well, it's you and me and uh, a few folks out there. I, I got to say, hey, David, welcome to the show. Uh, we'll have to uh, play your wine news theme um, after the fact with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the editing, post-show editing. Alpha King, glad you could be joining us today. Uh, so, Pennsylvania, Eric, just stand uh, stand by here a moment while I finish the intro. Uh, Pennsylvania, in fact, uh, Pittsburgh was just recognized as the most livable city in uh, in the United States. And uh, as not a Pennsylvanian by birth, I feel like I can tout this a little bit. Now, for those of you who don't know, I was born in California and uh, educated out there. I got a master's degree at uh, Stanford University, which is such a grand and uh, glorious campus. I was out there the year that uh, John Elway was in his uh, senior year, went on to become uh, Great, uh, legendary, soon-to-be Hall of Fame quarterback at the uh, on the Denver Broncos, number seven, uh, won two Super Bowls near the end of his career. Um, I was actually at the game that the Stanford band ran out onto the field thinking that Stanford had won, right as Berkeley was in the middle of five laterals and, you know, some... Uh, Big burly uh, guy who uh, caught the ball last ran over a trombone player uh, on the ten yard line and ultimately scored. And those of us from Stanford went from uh, you know ecstasy to uh, well Diablo. Uh, just to touch on the wine we'll be drinking tonight in uh, the last four seconds of the game. But you know that said, even being a Californian by birth, I must say Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania are a truly delightful place to to live and work and raise a family and enjoy all the wonderful cultural institutions that were left to us by, uh, well, obviously a lot of modern-day supporters, but the Carnegies and Fricks and Mellons, the true entrepreneurs of the late 19th and early 20th century. So for tonight's vino, we are drinking, and uh, let me just uh, jump back here to their website uh, and, you know, I'm, I, all of you who listen to the show know that I'm just not so great with the foreign languages. I totally butcher French. And uh, tonight we're going to go to uh, Spain. Um, this is what, if you didn't know the first thing about Spanish, you would say was uh, Casalero del Diablo. But uh, two L's make a Y sound, at least most of the time. Um, I'm going to say it's Casalero del Diablo. And specifically, we are drinking the Carmenere 2005. Uh, it is a product of Chile, and uh, this is a, uh, a reserve wine. Um, it uh, actually uh, comes comes out of the uh, the Central Valley, and um, you know I'm not sure if the if the recipe is from Chile or the um, the grapes are from Chile, but it does say on the website, and, and you all know how accurate these websites are. 
the uh, Central Valley, 2005. Apparently the soil, and we're going to get into an interesting article about terroir later in the show, uh, river bench and benchland associated soils. Now, <laughs> you tell me what that means. Uh, age 70% in uh, small American oak barrels, 30% in stainless steel, a total of eight months. Now, you know, I love the American oak. It uh, definitely has a different flavor than the French oak, but frankly, what we've learned in home winemaking, and by the way, I'm addressing a specific critique. We got an email from last show where we didn't talk about home winemaking, or we didn't actually say the word wine until 15 minutes in, into the show, so let's let's get into the wine early. Uh, this is uh, home winemaking, and I like the idea of blending um, you know, an oak and an American, well, French oak and an American oak barrel, just, you know, a little bit of each more flavor complexity. Now, hold this up to the light. You're going to notice it is a uh, deep, dark, purpley, inky wine. Um, I don't know. It's definitely, you you maybe call it bright purple, um, but uh, not the traditional brick you find in an older aged, uh, maybe breaking down wine. And, uh, you know, each of you can taste it. I, I really like this one. It is uh, delicious, hopefully widely available. And uh, what are you going to get out of it? Uh, some dark plums in the aroma, uh, black currant, uh, maybe some chocolate, and, uh, uh, you know, some spice. And uh, certainly you get that uh, toasty American oak, which is going to give you some uh, hints of vanilla. Um, what might you pair this with? Well, I went to the Casairo del Diablo website, and uh, I, I must say their website is delightful in its design, although it's a little slow because they've got very cool animation, but you want to try to move quickly from one place to another. And, uh, well, there's this um, this good-looking 20-something guy who's guiding you uh, with a lot of video animations, but it's a little slow to get around. But um, according to the... Uh, the website, and maybe this is um, playing it both ways, but they say great for a tasty winter stew or a grilled summer barbecue. And by the way, tonight I had one of those grilled summer barbecues, a beautiful pork loin on the barbie and uh, some delightful couscous and uh, cauliflower with a Thai peanut sauce. Um, by the way, not with the wine. I waited till the show time to start the wine, but... Um, Oh, it's so nice at this time of year. Beautiful summer day here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, perfect to get out uh, out grilling. Well, Eric, we've got like a million things to talk about here. And uh, <laughs> hey, David, uh, I see you've joined us via Skype. You had a little bit of trouble getting in to start with. Oh yeah. Now, yeah. Our, did you obtain the? Uh, am I saying it right here? The Casiero del Diablo Carmenere. Sounds good to me. And uh, are you? Uh, does it taste good to you? Have you tried it tonight? Um, actually, I got, I got it last week. It, it was very interesting. I was getting very different flavor profiles than you, but maybe because I didn't take my notes until it had been open about three days. Open for three days? Yeah, well, at least uncorked. Well, that'll, um, that'll definitely <laughs> change the, the flavor. That's a, a good long while. Mine's only been open for about, uh, well, more than three minutes, but not three hours. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, I got a lot of vegetal flavors out of it. 
Now, overall, how would you uh, rate this one compared to others? And by the way, what did you pay for this in California? Because you're always uh, doing so much better than we are here with our uh, grand Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. It was on sale for six ninety nine. Oh, you're <laughs> you're yeah. killing me. The interesting thing was I I went to this particular store, Beverages and More, just to pick that up. And so I grabbed the bottle and I was holding it horizontally. And I was just kind of looking at some other bottles and I just having to look down and that bottle was dripping wine. <laughs> mm. Not good. Definitely not yeah. good. So I learned a lesson there. <laughs> Well, actually, I think you learned a good lesson. You tip it and make sure that it's not leaking, because if it is, you don't want to buy that one. Exactly. So I put it right back on the shelf, because I figured if I took it up to the counter, they'd probably do the same thing. By the way, uh, uh, Tim Bakta is uh, chiming in on the chat here. He says he's tasting some deep cherries, and I can see that, uh, plums, mostly prune type, and the heat at the end. Uh, definitely getting that um, that spiciness, he says, of an Aussie Shiraz. So... Uh, I definitely uh, agree with his uh, his characteristic, and he got it for six ninety nine at Target in Kansas City. You know, this is such a bizarre concept. In Pennsylvania, there are a grand total of fewer than seven hundred places in the entire state that is what at least three hundred miles wide that sell wine, and the idea of a Target or a Costco or you know, none of those kind of places can carry wine in uh, in the great state of Pennsylvania, which is why I was able to obtain this for twelve ninety nine <laughs> instead of uh, that uh, you know outrageous price you guys paid. Oh, archaic! <laughs> now, don't get me started on uh, the Pennsylvania <laughs> Liquor Control Board. Hey, Jerry, welcome to the show. I um, I hope you are able to uh, pick up your. Did I say this is the Seller of the Devil. That's how it translates, Seller of the Devil. And, uh, um, well, with the spiciness, I think I can go with it. Wait, 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 wait. Jerry got his for nine ninety nine, in PA even. I obviously <laughs> went, <laughs> I got totally rooked here. Okay, well, hey, let's, uh, let's get to Eric, our special guest. Since this has never been a, a solo show before, in the previous 43 episodes. Eric, you're going to be my uh, my co-host for the night. And, um, you know, we got into a little bit of, uh, somehow we mentioned sauerkraut, maybe because it's a, a fermentation product, uh, last show. And, uh, okay, it's not home winemaking, but, uh, <laughs> hey, Jerry, I see you want Tog. Uh, you know, stop typing it. We want Tog, we want Tog. He's going to dial in later if he can get his cell phone to uh, connect from the Pennsylvania uh, Turnpike Hinterlands. By the way, I, I got derailed there. Pennsylvania Turnpike is the original interstate highway in the entire country when it was first um, you know, opened up. And this was back in, I forget exactly, 1930, 1940. People would go out just driving on it because there was no place else in the world where you could drive for you know, miles and miles, let alone even one mile, without uh, you know, having to stop at uh, intersections. And so the idea of getting on a freeway or interstate was uh, really, really novel. And uh, ultimately that led to the development of all sorts of things, including uh, motels, motor hotels, and uh, fast food places, Colonel Sanders and McDonald's and, and so on. So, uh, Tog, I hope you're out there somewhere and can dial in from the PA Turnpike. All right, so Eric, you and I uh, worked together for... Uh, couple of years. I must say it's uh, it was a true delight. You are one of the most talented people that I have ever 
had the um, the pleasure to work with. Uh, welcome to the Cellar Dwellers Home Winemaking and tonight's Sauerkraut Show. <laughs> Thank you for that intro. And uh, um, I think I can give a little bit of background as to how how this topic originally came up. I think we were Dave and I were talking one day about winemaking and uh, about what a you know what a fun family affair it can be where you you're in the basement, you know, getting the wine ready to go and then eventually bottling it and whatnot. And I shared with him sort of another family experience that, that my family uh, gets into, which is actually the, you know, the making of sauerkraut each fall. You know, I and, find I find both of these topics so amazing because most of us, um, you know, of uh, this generation, and I don't mind admitting I'm in my 40s at this point, you know, we've grown up in uh, a world where you pretty much went to the supermarket and you could buy anything, and the concept of something actually growing or, you know, uh, uh, something actually coming from an animal, um, you know, it, you sort of understand it as a distant intellectual concept, but you never lived it. And yeah. so to actually get into home winemaking where you start with grapes and you end up with wine, to me it seems like such a, a miracle or a gift of God. And I, I think when you told me your sauerkraut story, it was sort of the same thing. Yeah. Well, I, I have a little bit different background because I come from – my family actually uh, uh, settled around 1820 up in Ontario, Canada, and uh, they kept a lot of these traditions. So they actually – growing up, people would make stuff sauerkraut, you know, preserves, all those strange things. And you said actually, settled in, in 1820. Where, where did they come from, Eric? What was the lineage? Well, actually, most of them uh, came from Pennsylvania, but they originated in uh, a place uh, just outside of Switzerland that traded hands between uh, Germany and France. It's got a place called Alsace-Lorraine. And uh, they were being persecuted for religious purposes. So they went to Pennsylvania and uh, and then they moved on to a place uh, in Ontario called Kitchener Waterloo, and uh, basically Pennsylvania was a stop through point for them. Well, I, I don't understand why they left. You know, this being yeah. the most livable city in America, but you know, we'll we'll cut them some slack on that. Anyway, so so I grew up with some of these you know neat things being made, some you know anything from pickled beets through to pickled corn to. And you're saying to, more or less this was handed down almost 200 years as a family tradition. Yeah. Yeah, about 150, 160 years. Like my grandmother, I remember growing up, her going out into the, you know, she going, you know, getting in the car, going out to a, you know, farm area and, and walking through the, the farm fields, either picking little corns to pickle them or uh, going along the, the, the side of the bush and picking currants to make jam and, and stuff like that. Wow. Well, so many of us didn't ever experience that. So uh, yeah. I guess you're a bit more connected to the land than, than uh, most of us uh, here on the uh, continent of North America. It's just, it was, it's just neat. I don't think anybody in the family does it anymore. I think this is probably one of the only streams of, of things that are still going. But uh, um, if you want me to tell you, I can, t- I can kind of run you through what we do. Well, yeah. are you going to take me through sauerkraut? Or, or yeah. yeah. In fact, I found that I didn't really know the first thing about sauerkraut before you told me the story. I didn't know that it was a fermented product for that that yeah. matter. So, um, it, we we've got some cabbage. So start me from the cabbage. All right. Well, basically, each fall after the first frost, and I don't know why, but that was you know, something that was handed down. You get whatever amount of cabbage you want. You get some sort of barrel uh we used to use crocs but now we use like a big plastic barrel 
Now, I mean, first frost, first of all, you're in Ontario, so we're talking like October? October, yeah, And October. is there something about a frost that says, uh, you know, maybe the cabbage has frozen its outer leaves, it's going to start to look bad or something? I mean, or... I, just... no, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I honestly don't know. We, we've we've tried to make it earlier, and it actually, you know, the people don't believe it tastes as good, right? So maybe the frost triggers some sort of sugar process or something inside the the cabbage. Now, here's my theory, and listeners will know that I've got a million theories, and they're probably 999,000 of them wrong. But, you know, if, if there's a frost, maybe the outer leaves freeze, which breaks down the cell me- membranes, which releases something interesting into the, the sauerkraut. So there, there's my theory for you, Eric. I, I wouldn't doubt it. So then we uh, then we get whatever quantity of cabbage. Wait, you wouldn't doubt that? I just I made that up on the fly. You've known me for a while. <laughs> I think you're just no, you're no, being actually, nice because I have the power of the mute and the unmute button. No, I actually don't doubt it because you know it's it's a fairly uh, you know a lot of these old wives' tales turn out to be fairly true. Right? All right, there's some, there's, there's some legitimacy behind that. I'm so. with you. I'm with you. Okay, um, so now we've got frosted cabbage. Yeah, and then we uh, so then you get it, you you peel the outer leaves off, you core it, and then you slice it. So we um, for years used a homemade slicer that was probably 200 years old, but, you know, we've graduated to, like, a meat slicer. Now, uh, so you're slicing it actually into the finished form of sauerkraut that we know. I mean, it's really sliced, like, yeah. I don't know, eighth-inch, quarter-inch kind of slices. Yeah, like, you know, I don't even know what the what the slice size would be, but we call it fine, right? So it would right. be, you know, you know, maybe it's a, you know, a centimeter, something like that, width. You slice it up. Uh, uh, we, as I said, we but, you know, a relatively cheap uh, slicer. And then what you do is you layer the bottom of this, this crock or this, this bin with some of the outer leaves. You then um, put in about five pounds of cabbage. And then you put in, uh, you know, two, two and a half, three ounces of pickling salt. And then what you do is you... Now, pickling salt, I'm, you know... I'm not the least bit familiar with this whole process. Is that just like regular salt, or there's more in pickling salt than just like regular salt? It's like a coarse salt. You can, I think you can pick it up pretty much. I think you can just pick it up at the grocery store. All right, so this might it's be not, like, I'm familiar with sea salt, which comes in, you know, big coarse, yeah. you know, grains. No, this, this would be the same sort of stuff you'd get. You know, be Sifto or Windsor or whatever the, you know, the, the name would be. Yeah, All right. Comes in a Probably bag. Morton's here, here in the U.S. Yeah. But uh, okay, pickling salt. And we just use a we just use a shot glass and then dump in a couple you know a couple shot glasses full of pickling salt. And then the key is you you tamp it down, right? So you have to get some some sort of um, instrument to tap it all down flat. And then once you've got two or three layers of this five pound cabbage and salt mixture in there. So you're talking five-pound layers, so five pounds of cabbage, then three pounds of salt, and again... No, no, not pounds of salt, ounces of salt. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) Thank you. You know, we would have sent our listeners astray for (laughs) yet again. So basically, let's let's just sort of take three layers of this, right? Okay. One layer, two layers, you've tapped it down, it's nice and flat. What happens after maybe the second or third layer is you start to get a, a fluid that comes up through the cabbage, because the salt and the cabbage have mixed together. You haven't crushed the cabbage, but you've pushed it down. You've, you've pushed it down fairly tight. So you got good density. There's not a lot of air there. And it has to create this fluid. So uh, that, and, that and so basic, is, is this is the salt sort of sucking the water out of the cabbage? Is that 
that's what, uh, what's happening? Exactly. So okay. it's, it's pulling the water out of the cabbage. You want basically the cabbage and, the, and the, this level of water to be roughly equal. And as you layer these layers, that it should remain relatively equal. I should, I should throw in there a couple of things. Um, basically, uh, on the bottom layer and the top layer, you, throw, you take an apple, you core it, and you, and you quarter it, and you throw it in as well. And wait, wait, so right at the very bottom, you don't want seeds, but a quartered apple yeah. and at the top? Yeah, and we, you know, we use a Macintosh, but you can use different apples. It doesn't matter. You don't, you know, we don't peel it. We just wash it, uh, core it, quarter it, toss it in, and it gets mushed down as well. But it takes the, the bitterness out of the cabbage eventually. Oh, seriously? I, but we're talking yeah. like two apples in this whole barrel? Like, Sometimes in a big barrel we put in a few more, but you know it's it's not many. Yeah, yeah. I think that's your your probably your secret uh, you know component to your recipe. So it, the apple, which is going to counteract the bitterness. Yeah. So if you take like a I don't know how much we would do. Like say we take like a um. I'm trying to remember what the size of the bin was when I was doing it as a kid, but say it's a you know maybe a 20-gallon bin or something like that, you'd, it would be two apples. If you're going to do something bigger, you would, you would use more. Okay. And, uh, but it's not, and there's no science to it. And then, uh, so as I said, you chop it up finely. You keep, the, you keep compressing it so that the, uh, the water level or the fluid level stays even with the, the cabbage. At the top of it, you put down some more of the, the outer leaves, uh, and then you weigh the top down with, um, with something flat, and, and put something on it heavy so it weighs down so the fluid just comes above the flat. We use a plate or a you know a wooden lid or something like that. With so so these outer leaves were the ones you pulled off, the ones yeah. that theoretically were frozen with the broken cells or whatever, and right. you're laying those down over the top of the whole thing, which maybe is going to cut down, in theory, on evaporation or something. It, it probably does. Um, it gets really hot. It starts because it ferments. It, you know, it gets up to be, I think it's about 86, 90 degrees. And by the way, and, did you add some specific yeast to make it ferment, or this is just like au naturel? No, we're done with the ingredients. So, it's so there were, you salt. didn't throw in any yeast there? No. Whatever's floating around out there? No, no. Yeah, the yeast will probably naturally activate. Now, can it, um, uh, with wine, you know, some people do make uh, wine with, you know, whatever natural yeast, although the... Yeah. The, the whole industry has evolved towards using specific yeasts over the years. Uh, do you get like a bad yeast in a batch of sauerkraut or pretty much it just, it can't go bad? We've never had a bad batch ever. Um, so uh, it's like, it's pretty straightforward. Then it'll get a scum on it after a couple of days. You gotta, you gotta scrape the scum off. Every oh, so this often. <laughs> sounds delightful. Okay, so we yeah. got a scum on top of the. Yeah. Now, uh, um, you had those the, the outer leaves, and then you said you put something on top of that to yeah. press it down, and the scum yeah. is on top of that. And we weigh it down, right? So you know, in you know, if you don't want to be too sophisticated, you put like a like a bottle of water on top of it, just so that that whatever that top plate is is compressing down on the on the the, the raw cabbage slash water, right? Right, and I'm and then, wondering why why is it? First of all, I'm a little distressed about the scum, but why is it important to get that scum out of there? I mean, I can't it, imagine you're really. It's not just sitting on the top. Um, well, maybe visually it is, but 
No, I think it's I, it's never I've never seen it percolate through. It just sits on the top. We've just scraped it off and 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 discarded it. I, you know, huh. I I can't tell you why, Dave. No, <laughs> no. Hey, you know what? This is a family recipe past 150 yeah. years. In fact, probably uh, you know a thousand years before that. So I'm going with it, Eric. So depending depending on the quantity, I actually should store it somewhere warm, right? When we do this, we actually do it in, in the fall, and and historically, we you know stored it in the in the basement or whatever. So warm, uh, you mean by maybe at least sixty five degrees? Yeah, you don't want it to freeze, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, the the warmer it is, the quicker it will actually pickle and uh, and ferment. Um, the way we usually just tell when it's done is by the color. Uh, if there's any green at all in the color, it's not done yet. Um, so it has to turn, you know, basically um, a, a light brown or a caramel color. And when it when it may, when it does that turning, um, it's ready to be uh, canned. Or what we actually do is we just get uh, the big freezer bags, um, take it out of the bin, uh, put it in the freezer bags. Um, don't really pack it with the fluid, just with the, the sauerkraut itself. Freeze it, and uh, and then when you want to eat it, you just take it out of the freezer, um, warm it up, wash it, and uh, and then and then you just cook it with whatever you're going to have. So you know. Now, how important is the washing and the cooking part? What what are you accomplishing there? Well, the washing the washing washes off any excess salt. Personally, I don't mind it when it's salty. Some people don't like it. So you just the washing is get the salt off of it, the pickling salt. Yeah. And then. Uh, and then uh, the cooking, you, you want to cook it really just till it's warmed through or, or heated through. And then you can you can either eat it as a side dish or you can, as you're cooking it, you can throw stuff in it. Some people throw ham or smoked uh, smoked meats or sausages in there. Rock it all up together. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my in-laws particularly like to cook it with a pork roast. So they take a pork ah, roast, put it yeah. in, a, in, a, in a baking pan, cover it in a... Covered in sauerkraut, um, put some. They actually put apple juice in the pan, and then cook it like they would normally cook the uh, cook the roast, and it comes out pretty darn good. Oh, I bet. I, my wife likes to make pork with apples, but I yeah. think throwing some sauerkraut in there. Oh man, that oh, would yeah. be something. It's actually pretty good. I have to. It's, it's, wow, it's, what a process! And so there's there's no. There's, there's another one. There's another. There's a, there's a food up here that because there's a lot of German immigrants that came here, you know, 150 years ago. It's called Kessel. And what it is, it's a pork chop that's been smoked. Okay. So it tastes a lot. When now, you take me it. back to the pronunciation on that again. It's hot. What do you say? It's actually spelled Kessler, K-A-S-S, I think it's L-E-R, but they say Kessler. Kessler, okay. Yeah. Kessler. And basically, it's a smoked pork chop. And, uh, and you get a nice one-inch thick pork chop. Some people cook them in the, in the sauerkraut. Some people barbecue them and then eat it with the sauerkraut. Ooh, and I like it, that idea. It's um, actually if you're ever up this way, I'll make it for you. You'll uh, <laughs> you'll just be shocked at how awesome it is. Well, you good with next week? <laughs> could, I could schedule a trip. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, so, that's that's. No, I don't I don't know what more to tell you. If it's I know that when we used to do it inside in relatively small crocks, uh, you know, the ones you, you, you see as antique crocks, um, it was two weeks. When we, now that my, my in-laws do it, they do it in these huge drums, these relatively large plastic drums. And uh, each drum holds about 150 cabbages, and it takes, you know, it takes a couple months to ferment properly. 
Um, so really the only way that I've ever been able to distinguish when it's done is the color. Okay, that sort uh, of transition from green to caramel, yeah. a little bit more translucent. Yeah, it's it's clearly no green whatsoever, mm-hmm. and the the cabbage won't be crispy; it'll be soggy. And uh, you know, this it's interesting because you know anybody who has it just says this stuff this stuff's really really good, and um, much better than anything you could buy in any of the stores. And, and by the way, it seems like um, you're not trying to add any particular flavors from the barrel in which it's fermented. It's fine if it's just a, a food-grade plastic. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I, yeah. You know... Now, I'll tell you one trick. When you get good at it, one of the things we've added in recent years is we'll put a, a whole head of cabbage in with, the, uh, in with the pickling cabbage. Just cord. Put the whole head in. And okay, so take... for it, you want to get that, that center part out, the, yeah. the dense, uh, you know, hard part. Yeah, okay. cart, but throw it right in with another sort of five-pound thing that you camp down. Okay, I'm dying and, to hear uh, why this, uh, what this is going to do. So I got a whole cabbage there in my sauerkraut batch. Do you like cabbage rolls? Uh, I do. I, I'm a so big, you... I'm a mega fan. I, I love even just like straight boiled cabbage. Delicious and good for you. Good anti-cancer. You know all that kind of stuff. But when you take these out, these whole heads, they come out as a whole head. We just freeze them once again in like a you know a Ziploc bag. And then uh, when you go to make uh, cabbage rolls, you make the cabbage roll with the with the cabbage ah, that is actually sauerkraut. Sort of a leaf. sauerkraut flavored cabbage roll. Oh yeah, now these are unbelievably good. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I I wonder if it's just me or is this like a miracle? I think again, it's that those of us who have grown up in you know modern society just. You know, all of our food has shown up packaged, and it's like yeah. there, there it is—the Oreo cookies. They, they showed up by magic. To, to think about making sauerkraut yourself. I'm this, this you is, know, so much I'll, romance I'll, to it. I'm, I'm so into this, Eric. I'll say how easy it is. Um, when I was dating my my wife, it's kind of a cheesy story, but when I was dating my wife, I, I showed up at her. Her, her parents are ethnic German, but her, uh, her mom, her when her mom's family had immigrated, the they had lost, you know, the art of making this sort of stuff because there was some sort of, um, there'd been a death in the family or some sort of orphan sort of thing along the way. And my wife's dad had moved from Austria when he was relatively young. Um, and so they didn't really know how to do this. So I showed up one day with, I don't know, 10 or 15 heads of cabbage and, uh, um, you know, a crock. And we made it in, I don't know, half an hour, an hour. Had a had an absolute riot doing it. And uh, they've been hooked on it ever since. That is just totally cool. I yeah. think I'm going to have to, uh, first of all, go back and listen to your recipe again uh, after the fact. But uh, as the fall rolls around, you know, cabbage is not particularly, particularly expensive. And uh, If you go to the countryside, and they know where you live, right? Yeah, well, um, so you, you can know actually, We're close probably, to the countryside. Well, you probably just go past, and I know because I've, I've done that drive right up to Ontario from there. There's a lot of farmer stands. Zelianople. And we, uh, what, we, what we did is we'd go to a farmer and just say, hey, you know, we, we're going to need a whole bunch of these. And uh, we actually got a bunch for, I the last time we did, we got them for three for a dollar. And they're huge, right? Because they come right out of the farm field. And uh, I think my in-laws did 150 head of cabbage. Wow. It took a, well, it took it took like a whole day to to shred these and t- and tamp them down. Well, that's the shredding sounds like it's the hard part, and you got to find a good uh, slicer. 
you got to get into a rhythm. What we did was we basically had sort of, and it's fun, right? Because you, you crack open some wine and you talk and you, you hang out. And basically we got, we got three groups going, right? You know, uh, my mother-in-law and I will, will core the cabbages. My, my father-in-law and wife will actually slice the cabbages. And then my, my brother-in-law and his wife will actually do the tamping. And you just get into this real rhythm and, and you, you shuffle it around once in a while. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that, it, you know, it's, it's a, call it an afternoon or something like that, and it's just, it's fun. Well, it sounds very reminiscent of, uh, you know, the, the day or days when we crush the grapes or even the days yeah. when we press the uh, fermented uh, grapes now, the, the, the this, is a, this is a bigger production than, than what I, I was used to growing up because we only did sort of small amounts, uh-huh. and that would only take, you know, an hour or so. But, well, you know what? Actually, I like your idea. Uh, start small for anyone out yeah. there. Uh, it's pretty easy to get a five- or six-gallon uh, food-grade plastic bucket look for that high density polyethylene hdpe and um, go to your favorite grocery store and you know cabbage is rarely more than a dollar a head you can buy you know probably 15 of them come home and uh, start slicing 15 you can do by hand and throw in an apple on the top and the bottom and eric this sounds like a great way to spend a fall afternoon it's a blast we have we have actually it's a tradition we didn't do it last year, and uh, so everyone was kind of bummed out. We were talking about it recently and that we have to you know, have to make sure we do it again this, this fall. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to put it on my list of things to do. It does sound like a lot of yeah. fun. It is uh, very similar to the best of home winemaking. It is just, it is fun. It is amazing. It is a connection to the earth and your ancestors and how food is made and where things come from and uh, you know, it's just it's a way to connect to that magic. So, uh, wow. Well, I'm so glad you could join us and uh, share with us the basics of uh, of sauerkraut. Um, <laughs> I I um, I like your idea of uh, making some sauerkraut and then figuring out a nice uh, pork and apple uh, apple recipe to go with it. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us. This is uh, really fantastic, especially on an evening when uh, my partner in wine has deserted me. Although I must say one of the real advantages of uh, doing this show uh, semi-solo is that the whole bottle here is for me. The, the, the seller of the devil. Brilliant. Eric, uh, any uh, closing thoughts for us? No. No, I think this is a great show. Actually, it's a, you know, I checked your website out on the weekend, and uh, this is, I think this is a really cool format. Uh, we have more fun with it, and uh, there are hundreds of listeners out there that uh, just uh, seem to thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, In fact, I'm going to go to the listener mail at this point. So uh, thanks for uh, chiming in tonight, and I bet there's more than, uh, more than a few listeners out there that are going to be out uh, looking for cabbage in the fall. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I have to say, uh, Tim says, uh, uh, do you have any suggestions uh, in in terms of what types of wines go good with sauerkraut? You know, I know beer goes great with sauerkraut, but uh, any thoughts on wine? I I do know you're a little bit into wine as well. You know, I personally like red wines. Um, uh, My father-in-law actually makes his own wine, and he quite likes, as I said, he's Austrian, so he makes a lot of white wines. Usually we cook it with some sort of red meat, so usually we have it with red. I, I like Shiraz, um, so when we're going to have a you know big family dinner together, we'll 
usually crack a couple bottles of wine, one or two reds, and uh, at least one white for my father-in-law. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Phenomenal. We'll have to experiment with that a little bit later. I um, I think we may well be delving into sauerkraut just to keep up the tradition of experimenting with fermented uh, products. Yeah. By, by the way, is there... Uh, I mean, this is fermented. Uh, you know, that juice that comes out of it, have you ever, like, sampled that? Is that um, alcoholic? Is there anything you can do with that byproduct? Just curious. <laughs> I, you know, it's salty as hell. I don't know if you could drink it. <laughs> I think it would kill you. <laughs> yeah, but it's got alcohol in it. You know, how bad could it be? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's a very light alcohol. But, but I see. if you tried to drink this, I think you're... Uh, you know, you would probably blow it up because of the the salt content. <laughs> All right, we'll stay away from that. Uh, well, thank you, Eric, for joining us. Uh, it was great you could uh, share with us uh, your family's 150-year-old sauerkraut recipe. Great, thanks a lot. All right, we'll catch you uh, hopefully again at some point in the uh, in the future. All right, well, on we go to uh, listener mail and some wine news for the week. And uh, again, we're going to come back. Uh, we'll keep this live show a little bit shorter. Uh, since the passionate one didn't show up, I'm, I'm here uh, singing and dancing by myself, which you know has its challenges, but the reward is I get the whole bottle of uh, Casiero, or Casiero del Diablo Carmenere 2005 uh, from Chile or the Central Valley. We're going to have to... Uh, Oh, it is. Uh, it says the Central Valley on the back and Chile on the front. Maybe there's a Central Valley not just in California but in uh, in Chile. All right. So um, live show, no sound effects tonight. I'm doing it from home. There's fans running in the background. Sorry for the lower audio quality. Uh, but a couple of emails from listeners. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris W writes in from South Florida. He says, "Hi, Dave and Tog." Loved the bottling procedure you guys discussed. Personally, I prefer to use commercial bottles. Uh, Here, here, Chris. I'm getting so sick of peeling labels off of uh, commercial bottles. I like uh, going with the, uh, uh, well, uh, mass production commercial bottles, but delabeled. But anyway, Chris says, uh, commercial bottles, I save everyone I can, including roping some friends into saving theirs for me. Um, Big tip here, by the way, Chris, Uh, tell them you will trade uh, bottles of wine, maybe one bottle per, one full bottle per, say, two cases of empty bottles if they delabel them for you, because that's that's the really hard part. Unless, of course, you find wines that are really easy to delabel, and uh, lately I've been looking for those, and you know, all things being equal, I'll buy the the wine where the label falls off easily with hot water. Anyway, the the only hard part, Chris says, is delabeling. I use liberal amounts of inexpensive dishwasher powder, uh, let soak in a bucket or a sink of warm water for a few hours, and the labels fall right off. Well, that is sometimes true. I don't know. I've yet to find uh, anything save for... Um, the uh, solvents that will get off the uh, commercial glues. Um, he goes on to say, also for any significant amount of corking of bottles, I recommend a good floor corker indispensable, which I totally agree with. But now here's the point of his email, and I think we got this wrong, or I certainly like Chris's clarification. Just a suggestion here. Uh, last week you talked about sterilizing bottles, and sterilizing is in quotes. Uh, since this is primarily a home winemaker's talk cast, I think the term 
sanitizing would be better utilized here. And uh, Chris, you're absolutely right. Sanitizing is what we're talking about. Sterilizing, that's a level up. If the passionate one were here, and I should check to see if he's shown up. I've got everybody muted on entry. Uh, no sign of the passionate one yet. Um, he, he, you know, with his dental practice, has what he calls an autoclave, which uses pressure and extreme temperature to truly sterilize. We are talking sanitizing. So when we talk about sodium metabisulfite, or better yet, potassium metabisulfite, if you can spend the extra, you know, ten cents, that's uh, that's what you want. But it is sterile. I'm sorry, to sanitize, not sterile. So uh, uh, Chris goes on, you know, the best we mere mortal home winemakers can achieve is careful diligence while cleaning, and the most we can hope for is sanitary, not sterile. Many people get too wrapped up in the attempt to sterilize, even to the point of worrying so much about it, they blame many prom- problems on the issue and uh, eventually give up. In the end, uh, we can only do our best, uh, another good reason for SO2, but if that's not enough, think of it this way. We all spend so much time cleaning our bottles, tanks, and hoses that might otherwise introduce germs into our wine. We spend months or even years caring for our young wine, carefully racking and testing, minimizing oxidization. Finally, we take care uh, uh, while bottling. Then what do we do? We shove porous. <laughs> the, the passionate one would love this porous bacteria-laden tree bark <laughs> into the top of the bottle and hope for the best. And yet, I'm still not a fan of screw caps. Where's the romance? And in my favorite line of the email, uh, Chris from South Florida goes on to say, and don't say the romance is in Boone's farm in the back of Dad's Chevy. Although, you know, if there's ever a definition of romance, I think that might be it. All right, on we go. Uh, Let's see, jumping to another listener email. Uh, And here we have, oh, this comes from Alpha King. And he says, in short, a couple of sentences, uh, find the attached article in the Style Magazine of the New York Times from two weeks or so back. A nice read on the nebulous concept of terroir, or terrier, (laughs) if you want to pronounce all the letters. But a terroir, as uh, it should be properly pronounced in French, by Harold McGee of On Food and Cooking fame. Uh, So thank you, Alpha King. And here are a couple of uh, key points from this article. And we'll have to edit in, after the fact, all of the, uh, the wine news themes and so on. The title page says, and I'm going to have to zoom down, it's a little bit big, but I like it. It says, talk dirt to me. Not talk dirty to me, but talk dirt to me. That is the essence of terroir. And then uh, he goes on the uh, subtitle page, and thank you, Alpha King, for scanning all this for us. Uh, Next time the sommelier prattles, uh, (laughs) prattles, uh, the cellar dwellers have been accused of prattling a bit, Uh, prattles about terroir, do beg his pardon. Here, Harold McGee, just to uh, presage or preface or uh, whatever the word is, it's not coming to me, uh, about uh, terroir in this article, uh, debunk the idea of earth in a bottle. And on we go to the article. And by the way, this is not my favorite article. It is my second favorite article of the show, so stay tuned for the best one, but uh, this is a good one. So uh, it, it goes on to say, 
any conversation about uh, wine these days, somebody's going to say the French word terroir. Okay, key point, terroir. You're going to need to know where this is derived from. It comes from the Latin root meaning earth. Uh, it is meant to reference the relationship between a wine and the specific place. I mean place, like the, the microclimate, the soil uh, that it comes from. Uh, people say that the uh, Chablis uh, and its main character comes from the limestone beds beneath the vineyards. Uh, and um, I guess the premise of this is that the idea that somebody can taste the actual earth in the wine is um, a somewhat dubious uh, concept. Terroir was first associated with wine in a negative way. It was a 17th century phrase, uh, and I, I'll just, you know, I'm going to take my flying uh, run at this French. Uh, go de terroir, meaning literally to taste the earth, uh, was not intended as a compliment. But in 1831, the meaning began to change when a Dr. Merlot M uh, or Morlo, M-O-R-E-L-O-T, not the Merlot like the wine. Uh, he was a wealthy landowner in Burgundy, and he observed in a, uh, a pompous production, not quoting the article here, the Statistique de la Vigne dans le département de la Côte d'Or, uh, that of uh, all of the wineries in Burgundy made wine essentially the same way, so the reason some tasted better than others must be due to the terroir the soil, the microclimate, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so it goes on to say, and this is where I thought the article got interesting, that uh, there was a, a little experiment on the effects of a place on wine. Researchers in Spain recently compared wines from the same clone. Now, we've talked about this. Uh, you know, the, the wine um, grapes, the vines, do not grow on their native roots. You cannot reproduce a wine from its, the, the, or a grape from its seeds. Uh, so the clones, uh, grafted to the exact uh, same rootstock, okay, so this is uh, going to Spain, um, and this is Grenache, they harvested and vinified in exactly the same way uh, the grapes of two vineyards that were grown all of 1,600 feet apart. Uh, one soil was much richer in calcium, potassium, and nitrogen, and uh, you know the other was in a uh, uh, a richer soil. And uh, well, the bottom line was the the mineral rich soil produced a wine that was apparently higher in uh, uh, density, alcohol the ripe, raisiny aromas. Again, higher in alcohol, because I'm guessing good uh, soil led to uh, better uh, you know, nutrition and therefore more sugars and therefore more, more alcohol, while the wines in the poorer soil were higher in acid, astringency, but apple-like aromas. And the, the article goes on to say that the different soils produce different flavors, but uh, um, you know, they were the flavors of fruit and they were really the result of the interaction of the the fruit and the fermentation of the yeast. So, you know, why weren't people, and I think this is the key point, talking about wines um, as, uh, you know, flavored like the soil. Oh, this is, one is more granite or this one is more limes, limestone. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, 
those aren't the things. It's not the soil that people are talking about. And, you know, the bottom line on this article is it goes on to say that it's not the earth's materials directly because fermentation of the sugars uh, transforms, you know, acids and aromas and tannins and pigments into all these other molecules that make wines and grapes delicious. It's not the plants interacting with the rocks. So uh, there you go. little... Uh, uh, maybe counter viewpoint on uh, terroir. It's not the soil directly. It is, um, you know, what uh, what the yeasts and the uh, fermentation and the uh, combination of molecules do to the soil. All right, on to my uh, favorite article of the week, and a couple more uh, listener emails, and we'll. Uh, We'll call it a night since it's just a solo show. And you know what? It's it's the the passionate one that makes this so fun. I love hanging around with him. I must say, of all the people in the world that I that I know, I laugh more uh, when I'm with him than uh, uh, anyone else. He is just he's got a heck of a sense of humor, and uh, he's just a fun and funny guy to be around. All right, to cork or not to cork. A uh, lot of interesting statistics in this. This comes out of Avenue Vine, Wine News and Information. And it turns out that George Tabor is writing a book about corking. Uh, he starts out by saying that uh, vintners have never been at a loss to find something to disagree about. It could be hang time of the grapes or whether high alcohol or that uh, ever-present uh, terroir or trellising or new world wines versus old, uh, he decided to jump right into the middle of corking. Uh, apparently it is breaking up, according to him, friendships and uh, business alliances. To cork or not to cork, he is about to publish a book in October called The Billion Dollar Battle for the Bottle. Uh, supposedly it blows the uh, lid off this whole thing. He got the whole idea, he says, by uh, um, participating in a Paris tasting um, you know, it seemed like everyone enjoyed tasting, but uh, wine people everywhere wanted to at least recently talk about closures. Uh, many uh, people are now comparing it to the religious wars, and, uh, you know, uh, arguments are so deep here that friendships are lost. Now, here are some of the interesting parts about this article. It, it turns out that this discovery of trichloroanisol, the TCA, 246-TCA, as we've talked about in previous shows, that dates to only 1980. I mean, that's, that's pretty new. It was discovered, uh, or in 1981, I should say, the 80s, in Switzerland by Hans Tanner. He's a researcher who lived outside Zurich. And uh, it turns out that Swiss wines are very light in flavors and aroma and therefore more sensitive to off-odors. Now, here is, um, I don't know, this is quite amazing. Most people can detect the aroma at six parts per trillion. Six parts per trillion. One second in 320 years is one part per trillion. So we're detecting six seconds in 320 years. What a phenomenal fact that is. And by the way, you know, we don't even begin to compare to dogs, so uh, don't get too excited here. Um, some people can even taste down to two parts per trillion. And, uh, you know, obviously this affects uh, bottles that are $400 as well as bottles that are uh, two-buck chuck, which, by the way, I'm going to talk about in a second, uses corks. So, 
you know, what is TCA if you've never tasted it? I must say that we've had this in some of our homemade wines, and until I read this description, I did not really get it. But if you've ever tasted something that uh, reminds you maybe of wet newspaper, I thought of, of it more as uh, sort of a wet filter paper, a wet filter. Uh, that is the, the, the smell or the scent of TCA. Uh, long time uh, the cork folks were in denial. Each year, again, more interesting stats, 20 billion closures go onto wine bottles, and uh, increasingly they are not corks. It turns out that in New Zealand, 95% of closures are, are now screw caps. 95%. Uh, Australia is up to 50%. Uh, in the U.S., it's still only 20%. Uh, we still seem to be partial to corks, although in Portugal... Spain, Italy, France, the cork proportion is even higher. So uh, it turns out that uh, these countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and France, produce approximately 4 billion gallons of the 7 billion gallons of wine produced each year, about 57%. So, you know, we still got uh, a lot of corks out there. Uh, you can pre-order this on, this is funny, it's just a little typo. Again, the web is never totally accurate on Amazon.com. Um, <laughs> that's C-O-N, like Nancy, not C-O-M, con like con man. I think that's just a typo. But who knows, Amazon.com, maybe that's where they're selling uh, George's book. So um, brilliant 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 piece of wine news all right uh, passionate one uh, i don't know where you are we're almost one hour into the show and you haven't shown up uh, thank you jerry i'm doing my best here for a solo run i'm glad the audio is working even though i've got uh, the fans running in the background a lot of white noise regular telephone not our nice studio mics uh, but uh, just doing our best a couple more pieces of, of uh, uh, listener email and uh, one last piece of wine news, and then we will be back instead of two weeks. We will be back in one week with our next live show since it wasn't the uh, the duo. I must say that The Passionate One has a massive, massive piece of life-changing news. I'm not going to uh, share it with you tonight. but uh, And by the way, you all won't even care about it at all, but to him it is extremely important, and maybe it will bode well for the wine world. Chris from Pompano, Florida, writes in, Hey guys, and this is Wednesday, the 23rd of May, last week. Great show again. I couldn't help but notice just for a laugh, and I referenced this earlier. You guys actually went 15 minutes into the show before the word wine was even mentioned. Although it was interesting talk, I cringed when you started talking about American Idol. Hey, by the way, Jordan took it last week. Anyone who didn't watch it, uh, that's the answer. It was uh, a week ago Wednesday, and uh, it was all between, uh, 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 well, Jordan and the beatboxer, and uh, Jordan took it. I'm so past that show, Chris goes on to say, and would rather have my tree. <laughs> passionate one. I'm sorry you're not here to, to listen to this. I would rather have my teeth drilled than watch it again. Oh, sorry, Tog. Anyway, for the rest of the show, big congratulations on the gold and silver medals. That's definitely worth a few bragging rights, and it's got to make you feel good about all the time you put into wine. You know what, Chris? The truth of the matter is it wouldn't matter. I mean, it is nice to get the confirmation other people uh, like the wine, but we have so much fun just doing this for ourselves and, you know, for our friends, and it is the most 
phenomenal hobby. And if if you are listening to the show and have never made wine, the easy way to get started, but to be 99% of the way there with the real process, you know, go check out Peter Brehm, B-R-E-H-M. Not a sponsor of the show, but people we love. Get their frozen grapes any time of the year. Order whatever you like the best. And, uh, you know, either throw yeast in or just do it au naturel. Uh, we're going to come back to uh, talk about our Grenache experiment next week. Uh, either way, I think you'll be delighted, and uh, it is just so much fun. Anyway, um, Chris goes on to say, with respect to uh, the wine competition that we just entered, uh, where do I go to become a judge? I didn't get a chance to uh, try the Rosenblum with you last week. Uh, I've had it before and found it to be very nice. Uh, it's part of what's called the three R's or the three amigos, Ravenswood, Ridge, and Rosenblum. You know, we've we've had the Ravenswood, uh, especially there's in, and we just had the the Rosenblum. So, uh, Chris, I think maybe it's time to try the Ridge. Uh, all three are great wines, he goes on to say. And at one particular sponsored event, and I love this idea, and I think somebody uh, you know out there could make a gazillion dollars on this. They actually blended the three together for what was this described as one incredible Zinfandel. And he cites the uh, you know www.zinfandel.org slash festival, and from there hopefully you can find it. Um, so how about a, an update on the Malbec experiment? What I, I tell you what, we did do one with uh, natural yeast and one with a specific cultured yeast. Uh, we will update you next week. We'll do a little bit of tasting of our Malbec at this point in the process and let you know how it goes. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chris, for that uh, that uh, latest email. One last uh, listener, or I should say news item. I'm just trying to read a chat here at the same time. I can't do uh, so many things simultaneously. Uh, you know, when it's one person, it's a lot harder. Uh, Tog, even I... <laughs> Tog, even I am missing you during this show. I hate to admit it. I know that you'll do anything to get out of buying the wine. Okay, I'll buy the wine next week. Just come help co-host with me. Seriously, I'm missing you. All right, last uh, news item of the week, and we'll wrap this thing up. The biggest issue facing the wine industry. Anyone want to guess on this one? Uh, you know, what is the uh, the big, 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 big issue? Well, here it is. You wanted to know... And I picked this up because I personally experienced this. Uh, let's see the source on this one. Uh, big, big, big issue. It is from, and I'm accessing this remotely, by the way, with uh, gotomypc.com. If you want to check it out, uh, go to the TalkShoe website, click on the banner ad for GoToMyPC and get a special deal. A very nice uh, little, I wasn't planning to do a pitch here. But this comes from uh, Good Grape Wine Company. So thank you, Good Grape Wine Company, and uh, go to my PC folks. Uh, I also should mention I am like in the home stretch on Atlas Shrug, my audiobook from uh, uh, PodSavings.com/audiobooks. Uh, phenomenal! I love these audiobooks. Okay, enough commercials. Uh, from the article, Good Grape uh, Wine Company, the biggest issue facing the wine industry, I posit that the various – did I say that I'm receiving no money from any of these potential sponsors? But I'm trying to kiss up to them. I posit that the various reports on the consumer direct wine shipping uh, showing anywhere from 100 to 300% growth per year and virtually all wine being shipped via common carrier UPS and FedEx 
the biggest issue facing the wine industry today isn't biodynamics. Was that your guess? Uh, the uh, screw cap versus cork? Well, not so sure about that one. TCA, which would be related, um, RFID. Uh, for those of you who have never heard of this, that's uh, radio frequency identification. Uh, you know those nice little scan codes they've got on the back of wine bottles and every other product? Well, they're working on something where um, they're coming up with these new labels, uh, radio frequency ID, RFID. Uh, you can just walk within like three feet of something, maybe your smart shopping cart, and it'll tell you what uh, your product costs. Um, so it's not RFID, it's not counterfeiting, it's not theft of wine from high uh, net worth individuals with big wine cellars. Um, no, it's not those. The biggest issue, according to this author, facing the wine industry today is the direct shipping and the appropriate care of wine shipped with uh, the fulfillment provider. Um, well, okay, so here's the bottom line. Pretty simple. It doesn't matter if laws allow the wine industry to ship. You know, anywhere will we know, except for Pennsylvania, we're getting screwed here in PA. But okay, so they ship everywhere else. Uh, but uh, it doesn't matter if customers wince at the thought of paying the expensive shipping charges. That's not it. The wine isn't going to show up in good shape. That's the problem. As a wine guy told my brother years ago, after an unfortunate incident with an expensive bottle on a hot summer day, you wouldn't leave your dog or a gallon of milk in a car on a hot summer day, and you shouldn't leave wine either. By the way, my sister once left a dog in a car in Arizona in 110 degree heat for one hour, and it did not survive. So I can you know, attest to that. Uh, that's not going to work. My dad, I've only ever had three reports of bad bottles of wine that I had made. I've never personally had one of my bottles go bad or taste bad or anything. I've only had three, and uh, the the three uh, were in... Uh, one, of them, one of them might have just been a bad cork. The other two were this. Uh, somebody packed wine in a suitcase, wrapped in dirty clothes, in an airplane, where it went up to a high elevation, low air pressure. The dirty clothes presumably have some yeast in them and other bad stuff got sucked into the bottle in the low air pressure. Uh, or maybe the air went out first and when it landed got pushed back in. Um, however the math worked, uh, I, I think that got contaminated by bad yeast. Okay, that was one bad bottle. The second one that I know of, uh, my father was in the possession of it. He was driving from Pittsburgh to Maine to visit a friend. Very hot summer days. The wine got well into the 90s or 100s. That ruined it. So, you know, personal experience. Uh, wine and extreme temperature variations, even over a relatively short period of time, uh, not going to work. So I, um, I think wine news, folks, uh, that is a true story about the, the big issues facing the wine industry. Uh, good grape, uh, nice article. I think it does relate to shipping and the temperature variation. So there is one reason perhaps to deal with your local wine re retailer even if it has to do with uh, uh, the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board and uh, you know maybe a little bit more expense and well so on and so forth. Folks uh, the passionate one will be back next week. I uh, uh, apologize for droning on in solo but I thought there was a lot of interesting information and talk about the uh, 
sauerkraut. I must say, Eric did a phenomenal job sharing with him the or with us, uh, all of us, the uh, recipe. Hey, David, uh, you still out there uh, with us on uh, on uh, Skype? Did you manage to uh, stay connected? Oh yes, it's working okay now. Happy to hear it. Uh, you know what? Uh, both Jerry and Tim have asked about uh, what do we drink next week. Uh, you're going to have to stay tuned because I don't have something picked out at the moment. That's usually uh, Tog's uh, job. Uh, by the way, Dr. Matt, DDS, thank you for joining us. We're, uh, we're just about done. The show is almost over, so you're going to have to come back next week to listen to The Passionate One. We're, we're glad you could join us, but uh, next week, come on time. <laughs> the show is over. Um, final thoughts on the uh, – well, you weren't drinking the, uh, the seller of the – devil tonight were you david that was last week no but it, it was pretty good wine but from your description of the color and uh, the other descriptions of the taste it's like we're drinking totally different wines no oh, i like this one a lot though it uh, it really is delightful it is um, uh, very smooth i'm not picking up um, you know like a lot of tannic uh, flavors or whatever uh, it's going down easy for me but maybe that's all because um, you know Tog is not here to share half the bottle, and so I get all of it to myself. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, that might be it. Well, hey, uh, Tim and uh, Matt and Jerry and Alpha King and I see Media Scout and uh, Eric and Eric, especially as a special guest on our our uh, sauerkraut uh, episode, and uh, several new listeners have not seen uh, Jay Newton or Ruth von Ruth or Sea Fusion before, uh, glad you could join us. We'll um, call it a night for tonight, but uh, we will be back in one week. That will be, uh, what would that be, June? Um, I don't even have my calendar here in front of me. It will be uh, June 5th, if I got the date right, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, look for the website. We will uh, publish the uh, the details of the next wine that we'll be tasting in our uh, internet interactive wine tasting and uh, talking more about home winemaking or anything else that involves fermenting or interesting cheeses or foods or, you know, whatever direction we go. We can uh, pretty much uh, cover any topic at all on this show. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.